All right, now let me invite you to grab your Bibles and turn them open to Judges chapter 3 as we continue our study of this book in the Old Testament. If you do not have a Bible, know that we have some on the table in the back for you to grab and use. If you do not own a Bible, take that with you when you leave. Let it be our gift to you. Uh, we're diving into Judges chapter 3 into a series, continuing a series we started a couple of weeks ago. Now, the past couple of weeks, we've been looking at what's called the prologue or the introduction to this book, which is quite lengthy. But now we're kind of transitioning into the body or into the core of this book. As we begin to look at the 12 narratives or the 12 stories of men and women whom God raises up to deliver his people from dire circumstances, circumstances that quite honestly, the people of God put themselves in as a result of their lack of faith and lack of trust and lack of loyalty to the Lord. And yet God would come through time and time again to deliver them. So there's about 12 stories of these deliverers, of these judges, and the first of which starts here in Judges chapter 3, verse 11. Now, long before our current current culture's uh, interest in and kind of obsession with non-linear storytelling, uh, God was already writing stories that way. Uh, we, we, our TV shows, our dramas, our movies, they, they love to employ that technique where they're writing, they're telling stories in a non-linear fashion. Well, God precedes us in every single way, including that. So when you and I think we're being innovative and you and I think we're being cool, God's already beat us to the punch. And so the book of Judges is arranged in a way that, that doesn't follow a chronological lineage, a chronological line. It moves in more of a cyclical fashion. And usually what happens in the book of Judges is at the very beginning, uh, in Judges chapter 1, verse 1, God, uh, the writer of this book, presents Israel in her most positive light. The one time Israel is coming together in unity and seeking the Lord's guidance and seeking the Lord's direction for their future. They, it happens right there in chapter 1, verse 1, and then everything from there is just kind of one long down, downward spiral as things just move downhill. So that by the time you get to the end of the book, everything's really hit rock bottom and we are told that people are doing whatever is right in their own eyes and that Israel is without a king, without a ruler, without someone to bring them together. And so that's kind of the general flow of the book of Judges, but that same pattern, that same corkscrew fashion of downward spiral movement is apparent in the stories of the Judges as well. So that when you come to these 12 narratives, the very first story of the Judges starts on a high note. And we are introduced to the most admirable and the most upstanding of all the Judges in the book of Israel. Or the book of Israel, in the book of Judges. And so what happens here is that we start off on this high note, but then every story we're going to look at from this this moment forward is going to drop degrees of intensity. It's going to drop degrees of complexity. They're going to get harder and harder and harder. So the way we want to envision this book is more like a corkscrew. And you know how our corkscrew works. Every time you turn it, it drives deeper into whatever it is set in. Well, this is how the book of Judges moves. With every revolution, with every full turn of a story, the narrative of the Judges drops degrees of difficulty, complexity, intensity. You might even say depravity. It gets really, really intense. But here... It starts off pretty well. It starts off with perhaps the most upstanding and admirable of all the judges in this book. So you have this guy named Othniel that we're going to be introduced to. And Othniel is not a salty left-handed assassin like Ehud, who we're going to learn about next week. And and he's not a uh, womanizing... 
party boy like Samson. He, he's more of a respectable family man, an honorable husband with a proven military track record. You see, Samson, who's probably the most famous judge in all of this book, he, he would be compared more to like Christopher Nolan's version of Bruce Wayne. Uh, that, that's who Samson is. But Othniel, when you step into his story, it's more like Jerry Siegel's Superman. Uh, Jerry Siegel was a guy who originated Superman. And, and so in Othniel's story, you're not going to read about any character flaws. You're not going to read about any controversies. He's essentially just a good, admirable, honorable, upstanding judge and deliverers. Now, one of the things that's cool about him is that there are no recorded flaws, and in this particular narrative, there are no ethical ambiguities, which isn't the case in all the other stories of the judges. And so what we're meeting here in this passage is, is the, a, a positive role model of what a godly man or a godly woman or a godly leader should look like. Because here you meet a guy who is participating in God's purposes. His life is about the things of God. And the reason why he's about the things of God is because he's a guy who trusts in the promises of God. And this makes him upstanding, this makes him honorable, this makes him imitatable as it relates to, uh, in comparison to all the other judges that we're going to learn about. You see, Othniel is a guy who just finds himself swept up into the drama of God's redemptive story. He's not a guy who's self-sabotaging by making his own drama. He doesn't live a dramatic life where he's constantly trying to make things happen for him or make things happen uh, in his life. He's not creating drama. He's just being swept up in the drama and the story of God. And so what this means is that Othniel would never become be the subject of his own reality TV show. Uh, our culture would not find him interesting enough. Nobody is keeping up with Othniel, as it were. He's not that interesting of a guy. In fact, longtime readers of the Bible and longtime readers of the book of Judges rarely recognize this guy's name. And the reason that is is because his story is so uh, unassuming. His story lacks the dramatic elements of Ehud's and the dramatic elements of Samson's. His story actually contrasts not only with all the other judges in this book, but his story contrasts with all the types of people that you and I are usually intrigued by, all the types of people that we're obsessed with. I mean, you think about the types of people who make up the tabloids in our culture. You think about the types of people who get their own reality TV shows in our culture. Usually they're doing so not because of their upstanding moral caliber and their upstanding moral character. And usually they do so not because... Of their, not simply because they're extraordinarily talented or extraordinarily gifted. The reason why they garner so much attention from people like us is because their lives are dramatic. And we are intrigued by dramatic lives. We are drawn like a moth to the flame in that direction. We're just infatuated with self-sabotaging drama. Why else do you think The Bachelor is so popular? Like, why do people watch that show? Well, it's this impulse. It's this infatuation we have with self-sabotaging drama. Because what seems to make the biggest splash in our culture and in our world isn't a life that is lived with finding a, just a hopeful happiness in God. Usually what gets the most attention in our culture, makes the biggest splash, is all the other self-sabotaging stuff. This is why Samson's story will be turned into a movie. But Othniel's is the story worth imitating. Othniel's is the story worth considering as it relates to 
to who we want to aspire to be as we journey through the world that is. And we're going to see why that is as we move through the story. So his story begins here in verse 7. And it starts off on a downer kind of note. The Israelites did what was evil in the Lord's sight. It's the first of a cyclical pattern. You're going to see this phrase repeated over and over and over again throughout the book. And here's what their evil looked like. Well, they forgot the Lord. They disregarded the Lord. They had no concern for God in their hearts. And so they forgot the Lord their God and began to worship the Baals and the Asherahs. In other words, they moved towards idolatry. They began to, rather than seeking happiness in the God who created them and in the God who redeemed them from Egyptian slavery and bondage, they began to seek happiness in these little G-gods, these little G-gods that, quite frankly, they could control. And I believe what they're experiencing in this moment is what's called the intrinsic uh, struggle of the heart, this internal idolatry that our hearts are drawn towards uh, seeking life in things that we can control. And I think this was the original temptation in the Garden of Eden. A guy by the name of C.S. Lewis, perhaps you've heard of him, I use him a lot, he would quote and describe uh, kind of this original temptation and our hearts pull to things that we can control and why that is. And listen to what he says that we do. He writes that what Satan put in the heads of our remote ancestors was the idea that they could be like gods. They could set up for their own as if they had created themselves, be their own masters, invent some sort of happiness for themselves outside of God, apart from God. And out of that hopeless attempt has come nearly all that we call human history. Money, poverty, ambition, war, prostitution, classes, empires, slavery, all that is dramatic in a fallen world. He says, the long, terrible story of man trying to find something other than God that will make him happy. Well, you see this struggle manifesting in Israel's story here in this moment. As they are turning from the Lord their God and they're seeking happiness in these little G-gods. And these little G-gods have names. We talked about them last week. They're known as the Baals and the Asherahs. Now, just a reminder of, you can recall, the Bells and the Asherahs, these were the common gods that were worshipped by the Canaanite peoples, the people who occupied the promised land before Israel showed up. And what was kind of wild about the Bells and the Asherahs is that the people in Canaan believed that these were the gods responsible for causing life to flourish in the world. These were the gods responsible for all the vegetation and the produce. These were the gods that brought that about. But the thing is that these gods didn't just freely give provision and freely give this sustenance to the world. Instead, these gods had to be coerced into giving these things. And so part of the Canaanite worship was that these male worshipers would go to the temples devoted to the Baals and the Asherahs, and there they would find a sacred prostitute. And sacred prostitutes were women employed at the temple who were there to receive worshipers into their bed. And the reason they would receive these worshipers into their bed was so that in the, as they would hook up, essentially, the goal was to encourage Baal and Asherah to hook up. And once Baal and Asherah begin to hook up in the heavens, that's when the rains will start falling. That's when vegetation would start growing. These were the gods, in a sense, these were the gods that everybody believed would make them happy. But the problem with these gods is that they had to be coerced into doing that. 
They had to be uh, coerced into providing, coerced into coming through for them. And we said last week that that's one of the biggest differences between these, between these false gods and our true God. And, and to put it away, a God that can be coerced is a God that can be controlled. If you can coerce a God into providing for you, if you can coerce a God into doing something for you, if you can coerce a God into making you happy, then that is a God, in a sense, you can control. And if you have a God that you can control, you don't have the true God. You don't have the God of Israel. You certainly don't have the God who would send forth his son Jesus to live and to die and to rise again. This wild God, this lion of the tribe of Judah who cannot be controlled, who cannot be coerced, who cannot be tamed. But the struggle of the human heart and this internal desire we have for gods that we can control, for these little G-gods, for these little idols, is, is that that desire is so appealing and that makeup is so desirable. We want gods to, that we can control. We want to feel as though we are, can control our own happiness, that we can control our own pleasures in this world. And so it's appealing to kind of go after these little g-gods, but it's also very deceptive. Because what you find as you journey through this world very long and you begin to pursue things full throttle to bring you pleasure and to bring you happiness apart from God, eventually you're going to find yourself being controlled you're going to find yourself being controlled by whatever it is you are seeking happiness in. And the bottom line is that whatever ends up controlling us, whatever makes the biggest practical and functional impact on our lives, that is what you can say is your God. Whatever is controlling us is our God. So if somebody, let's put it this way, if somebody desires power and they begin to seek power, they're going to, in the end, be controlled by power. If somebody desires pleasure and they are seeking pleasure over time, they're going to find themselves controlled by pleasure. If somebody is seeking to escape and they are going after various ways to escape from life in this culture, maybe sinking into video games or sinking into alcohol or sinking into various ways to not feel what's real in this world, eventually that stuff will begin to take over. And the various things you're seeking happiness in apart from God, when they become an idol, when they become a little G-God, they will begin to control you. You can also say, what about our acceptance? Those who desire to be accepted by people. This is one of the worst I think there is, that in our desire to be accepted by other people, we find ourselves controlled by what other people think. And this is when our lives usually become quite dramatic. This is when we start having friction in our relationships. This is when we're no longer free to live and free to be. Instead, there's so much friction and controversy and conflict because we're worried about how we're being perceived and we're worried about how we're being viewed and we're trying to conform our lives to everybody else's perception and everybody else's opinion. And that is a miserable, miserable way to live. You see, the irony of idolatry is that every time we try to take control of our lives and seeking after our own happiness and these other things that are not God, eventually we find ourselves controlled by these various lords, by these various gods. Israel is experiencing this in verse 7. And what's interesting is you look back at verse 7, notice that the Baals and the Asherahs are listed in the plural. And that's telling because it reminds us that 
it's really easy for us to go after many gods and to look to many things to make us happy, look to many things to kind of compete with God and to rival God in our lives. And so we have many temptations, many potential idols in, our, in the world in which we live. And when we go in this direction, rather than enjoying God's good creation as an uncoerced gift of grace, everything that we have, our food, our jobs, our gifts, our skills, our talents, all of it, uncoerced gifts of God's grace, instead of enjoying those as such, we eventually find ourselves enslaved to them, and that is idolatry. That is the internal idolatry that plagues every single heart. And if you notice in verse 8, how God responds to this in Israel's lives is that he responds with anger. He responds with passion. Why is that? Well, it's because he knows that idolatry is just an evil form of self-sabotage. That any time we are seeking happiness apart from God and outside of God, we are at risk of sabotaging our lives. And when God sees us doing that, he's aroused his anger is aroused. He doesn't want his children, his people, self-sabotaging. And so what does he do in verse 8? Let's pick it up there. It says, The Lord's anger then burned against Israel, and he sold them to King Kushan Rishathaim. Say that five times fast. Out of Aram Naharaim, there's another one. And the Israelites served him eight years. So here's God's response to Israel's idolatry. He says, okay, I'm going to, um, I see my kids and they're at risk of sabotaging themselves. And so I'm getting angry about that. And what am I going to do? I'm going to discipline them. And God begins to relate to the Israel the way a loving parent should relate to their own child. It is a loving thing for a parent who sees a child gone wayward, who a child who's at risk of self-sabotaging. It is a loving thing for that parent to discipline them, to correct them. And this is essentially what God is doing here in verse 8. He's disciplining his kids because he loves them. Now, when you think about parenting, as a, I've been a father of three kids, and I don't have it at all figured out. I'm learning more and more every day. But from what I can tell, there's about two approaches that people take to parenting. On one hand, there's the path of least resistance approach. And this is the approach that moms and dads take where they say, okay, I see my kids going haywire, uh, but I just want to manage that so that to keep the peace. I don't want to discipline because discipline is too hard. Discipline takes too much time. I want the path of least resistance. So I'm just going to uh, manage the situation so that they're happy and I'm happy and my spouse is happy and everybody in the house is happy. And if I introduce discipline, people aren't going to be happy. And so they just take the path of least resistance. But then the second approach that is sometimes taken isn't the path of least resistance. It is this trial and error approach. And it's the approach that says, well, nobody really knows what they're doing when they become parents. And so we just got to try and see what works and see what doesn't and experiment and we'll grow from our successes, we'll grow from our failures. And we just kind of take this trial and error approach and hopefully we'll make it to the goal. Hopefully, we'll make it to the end. And usually, in those two approaches of parenting, there's, there's really just one. There's two objectives, aging and, and, uh, aging and surviving, meaning we want our kids to grow to 18, 25, depending on what culture you're a part of, 18, 25. We want them to age, and we want them to survive long enough to get out of our house. And if we do that, we succeed in our parenting. And sometimes that mentality and that approach 
it interrupts any practice or process of discipline and really it belittles God's goal for us as parents and the role we are to play in the lives of our kids. And it gives a terrible impression of what God's goal is for his kids and how he parents us. Meaning God's goal and his desire for each one of you as his son, as his daughter, his goal for you is not to age. His goal for you is not to live a long life in this world. His goal for you is not to survive life in a fallen world. Aging and surviving is not God's deepest goal for your life. His goal for your life, which is the same for mine, is to liberate my heart from idolatry. To transform my life in such a way that I become a man who loves God with all of my heart, with all of my soul, with all of my mind, and with all of my strength, with all of my strength, so that I would have a relationship with God that is not defiled by other lovers. I would have a relationship with God that is not corrupted by other competitors. I would relate to my God in a way that is free, in a way that is uh, exclusive. I would relate to my God in a way that would honor him as my God. And so God is going to do whatever it takes to get my heart there. And when it is time for him to discipline me because my heart is not there, he will discipline me. And when it's time for God to discipline you because your heart is not there, he will discipline you. And at times, his discipline can seem severe. It can seem harsh. But you got to keep in mind that God's approach to disciplining us isn't to ruin us. His approach is to reclaim us and to restore us and to refine us. This is exactly what we read in Hebrews chapter 12. In Hebrews chapter 12, where we find one of the best descriptions of God's discipline in our lives. And listen to what it says. Hebrews chapter 12, verse 5. My son, do not take the Lord's discipline lightly or lose heart when you are reproved by him. For the Lord disciplines the one he loves and punishes every son he receives. Endure suffering as discipline. God is dealing with you as sons. For what son is there that a father does not discipline? But if you are without discipline, which all receive, then you are illegitimate children and not sons. Furthermore, we had human fathers discipline us and we respected them. Shouldn't we submit even more to the father of spirits and live? For they disciplined us for a short time based on what seemed good to them, but God does it for our benefit so that we can share in his holiness. No discipline seems enjoyable at the time, but painful. Later on, however, it yields the peaceful fruit of righteousness to those who have been trained by it. God disciplines those he loves for our good. He wants to root out all rivals from our heart, and he will discipline us to that end. And if you have no category for this in your theology, you're going to have a hard time navigating the waters of a fallen world you're not gonna be able to see how God can take all the tough stuff of life and make it redemptive for his kids. You're not gonna be able to understand passages like Judges chapter three when he raises up this king and he actually sells Israel to him so that Israel is now find themselves subjugated to this foreign king, this external opposition. You see, one of the most effective tools God uses to discipline us is external opposition. It is the way he takes those things around us that apply pressure to our lives and he flips the script on them so that they begin to refine us and transform us and, in the end, liberate us. 
This is what he's doing with Israel in this story. He's using this king whose name I will not say again, but I will tell you what it means, whose name literally translates double wickedness. This is who this king is, and this is who God is handing Israel over to, this king of double wickedness. Now, we don't know a lot about him. Scholars have tried to figure out his identity by looking at chronicles of various histories and all these types of things, but all of their labor is in vain. We do not know exactly who this guy is. It seems that he comes from Mesopotamia, which would be somewhere today in southern Iraq, whatever the case may be, but we don't know who he is. His origins are mysterious, and I think that's telling. His origins are as mysterious as the origins of evil in this world. If you remember how the Bible begins in the Garden of Eden, paradise, Adam and Eve enjoying fellowship with God, but then somebody else is there too, right? And you're reading the story of the Bible and you're reading about paradise and suddenly you see this serpent whispering lies into Adam and Eve's ears and and you're wondering, where did he come from? What is his origins? And that same question have been plaguing human beings ever since where we're trying to make sense of evil and suffering and struggle in this world. And there's a lot about that dynamic that you and I aren't going to know, but there is one thing we can say for sure based on all that we read about God in the scriptures, and that is this, that God is sovereign over every, every hint of evil and suffering and opposition that exists in this world. He is sovereign over all of it. And this dynamic of the sovereignty of God is being hinted at in this story. But what is hinted at here is even made explicit later in the Bible in a book called Job. In the book of Job, you have this man who loved God and he did what was right in God's eyes and he turned away from evil. But then there's this interesting moment in Judges chapter 1 where God takes Job and he presents him to Satan. And he says, hey, have you considered my servant Job? He's a guy who loves me. He's a guy who trusts me. But then Satan speaks up and says, well, he only does that because you've made his life so cozy. Everything is going well for him. That's the only reason why he trusts you. That's the only reason why he loves you. And God responds by saying, well, let's see. And then God says this to Satan. He says, everything he owns, referring to Job, is in your power. However, do not lay a hand on Job. And it's a powerful moment because it reminds us that God is sovereign over Satan and essentially he holds Satan, the embodiment of evil in this universe. He holds him on a leash. He can do nothing apart from God's purposeful permission in Job's life. And he allows Satan to inflict suffering on Job, but he allows it knowing that, yes, Satan intends for this suffering that Job is going to experience to ruin him, but God had a deeper intention. God had a deeper purpose. He knew that what Job was about to go, th was about to go through wasn't going to ruin him. It was going to refine him. So that when you come to the end of Job's story in that book, Job is lacking in nothing and he becomes a, an illustration of what James would write later in the New Testament. James chapter 1 verse 2 where we read, Consider it a great joy, my brothers and sisters, whenever you experience various trials because you know that the test of your faith produces endurance. And let endurance have its full effect so that you may be mature and complete, lacking in nothing. You see, only a sovereign God can flip the script on evil intentions. 
Only a sovereign God can flip the script on external opposition that we all face in a fallen world. Whether that opposition, whether that pressure is coming from spiritual attacks or that opposition is coming from circumstantial attacks, whatever the case may be, only a sovereign God can flip the script on it. Only a sovereign God can use all of that to refine us and to root idolatry out of us. This is what he is doing for the nation of Israel. And what's amazing about this story is that the nation of Israel at this time is starting to get that message. Things are starting to change in them. So notice what they do in verse 9. They're suffering at the hands of this double wicked king and And then we are told that they cried out to who? They don't cry out to Baal. And they don't cry out to Asherah. They cry out to the Lord. Idolatry is being squeezed out of their hearts by the pressure being applied to them by this king who would rule them for about eight years. And then the people of Israel cry out. They say, okay, Lord, we're coming to you. You see, if you find yourself in a situation where you may be undergoing discipline from the Lord. Or you may find yourself in, well, let me back up. There are two types of discipline that we will experience in this world. There's a, there's a corrective type of discipline where God corrects us, and that's what's going on with Israel. This is corrective discipline. Israel's off course. God is disciplining them. But then the second dynamic is what's called perfecting discipline. And this perfecting discipline is what Job was experiencing in his story where God was perfecting him and refining him and and polishing him. And this is what we all will experience, one of those two types of discipline in our relationship with God, either corrective discipline or perfecting, refining discipline. But the temptation of your heart, whenever you are experiencing those things, is to move in one of two directions. Either your heart can respond in that moment by pushing away and pulling back from the Lord, And saying, God, I don't like all this stuff that's going down. I don't like losing my job. I don't like this diagnosis. I don't like uh, the way that I can't sleep at night and anxiety just won't leave my mind. I I don't like this. I'm going to push back from you. And I'll just, and if you push back from the Lord, what's going to happen is you're going to sink further and further into your idolatry. You're going to find yourself ensnared and enslaved by the things that are not God in your life. But then the other way your heart can respond, rather than pushing back from the table, you can press in. You can draw near. You can respond the way Israel's responding in this moment as they are crying out to the Lord. Rather than pushing back, they're pulling in. They're drawing near to their God. My favorite image of this is the image of a finger trap where you have these little finger traps that you can get at uh, that little Archie McPhee store on 45th in Wallingford, that bizarre store. I don't know if you've been there, but it's worth visiting. Uh, but they have these, they have all kinds of pranks and things, but one piece is this finger trap. And if you're familiar with a finger trap, you know that if you put your fingers into either end of that trap, there's only one way you can get out of it. If you try to pull out of it, the trap just squeezes tighter and tighter around your fingers. And the more you pull away, the tighter its grip on you becomes. And so the only way for you to really be liberated and to go free in that moment isn't to pull away, but to press in. And when you push your fingers closer, that's when the, its grip begins to loosen. And that's when they begin to fall, uh, the, this trap will fall from your fingers. 
Well, you realize that when you are undergoing the discipline of the Lord, and he's trying to root out idolatry from your heart because he's always up to something. He's always doing something. He's sovereign over every situation, every circumstance, every moment of every day because that is true. That means when we draw near to him instead of draw away from him, as we draw near to him, we will find idolatry's grip on our hearts loosening. We will find idolatry's grip on our hearts falling to the floor. This is God's way with his children in this story, and I believe this is God's way in our lives today as well. And so the people of Israel cry out to the Lord. They're struggling with two things. They're struggling with the internal idolatry of their hearts, these gods they want to control, the gods that they want to coerce, but then now they're struggling with this external opposition, and they need deliverance. So they cry out to the Lord, and then listen to how the Lord responds. His response is incredible. He responds by raising up this overpowering outsider who would set Israel free. And listen to the, listen to the moment. It says in verse 9, So the Lord raised up Othniel, son of Kenaz, Caleb's youngest brother, as a deliverer to save the Israelites. The Spirit of the Lord came on him, and he judged Israel. Othniel went out to battle, and the Lord handed over King Kishan Rishathamai of Aram, to him so that Othniel overpowered him. And then the land had peace for 40 years, and Othniel, son of Canaz, died. Now, there's a few things you need to know about this guy named Othniel. And the first is the meaning of his name. His name, Othniel, means the time of God. The second thing you need to understand is that he was an outsider of the tribe of Judah. Yes, he fought on behalf of Judah. He represented Judah. He was the only Judean hero in the whole book of Judges. But at the same time, he was an outsider to that tribe because his bloodline wasn't Israeli. His bloodline was Kenite. So he was an outsider of the tribe of Judah. But then the third thing you got to know about him is that he was anointed. The Spirit of the Lord came upon him. The Spirit of the Lord empowered him. The Spirit of the Lord was with him. And we're told that because of, this, because of all these things, he judged Israel. Now, what comes to my mind every time I read that, he judged Israel, particularly with Othniel's story, is a movie that came out back in 1995. It's a Sylvester Stallone flick called Judge Dredd. Has anybody ever heard of Judge Dredd? A few of you? Well, Judge Dredd is this movie starred in by Sylvester Stallone. And it's a movie, it's kind of a futuristic uh, sci-fi type movie and set in a futuristic setting, and you have these judges who are policing city streets. And the opening scene of this film is you have Stallone's character, Judge Dredd, standing before all these villains, standing before all these bad guys. And he looks at all the bad guys who were there wreaking havoc on the city, and he says, okay, guys, throw down your weapons and prepare to be judged. And then the villains attacked him, and they got in a battle, and before you know it, all these villains, all these bad guys were dead at Judge Dredd's feet. And in that moment, Stallone, Judge Dredd, then turns his attention to others and he says, now, court's adjourned. <laughs> well, imagine this spirit-filled outsider named Othniel. Imagine the spirit-filled outsider named Othniel from the tribe of Judah saying to the king, double evil, throw down your weapons and prepare to be judged. And then after overpowering this wicked king, he turns to Israel and he says to them, courts adjourned. You are delivered. You are free. 
That's what comes to my mind every time I read this moment. And when you think about that, it even, it's even more striking because you have to kind of imagine those things because there's not a whole lot of detail present in this story. All of these, this, this battle between Othniel and this evil double wicked king and the deliverance of Israel, this story is so stripped down, it's so basic, it's so bare of so many things. And as you read from verses 7 through 11, you find yourself not focusing so much on Othniel, but focusing on Othniel's God, right? You read this story and you're reminded, oh yes, salvation belongs to the Lord. And everything that happens in this story that is significant happens because of the Lord. The Lord sold Israel to this king. The Lord raised up Othniel. The spirit of the Lord came upon him, and the Lord handed over the king to Othniel, who would overpower him. It's all about God's activities. It's a stripped-down story, and as you read it, you're not so much focusing on Othniel. You're focusing on Othniel's God. And like Israel, we too must be delivered by an overpowering outsider. Because like Israel, our hearts are drawn towards internal idolatry. And our hearts are under the pressure of external opposition. We are struggling in a fallen world. And like Israel, we need to be delivered by an overpowering outsider. And the good news of the Bible and the hope of judges is that one day God would send one. One day God would send an outsider from the tribe of Judah. And you would have Jesus, born of a virgin, at just the right time. And he would live his life of perfect obedience only to go to the cross to subversively battle it out with sin and Satan and death. And when he would go to the cross, he was essentially declaring to all the evil forces of the heavenlies, throw down your weapons and prepare to be judged. And when he died on the cross three days later, rose from the grave, stepping out of the tomb, looking at all of his people across all time and space and saying to every one of us, courts adjourned. You are delivered. You are free. Meaning Jesus delivers us from the consequences of our internal idolatry. This is why we can say in Romans 8 verse 1, there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. We can also recognize that Jesus saves us from all external opposition, that everything that comes at us with evil intentions, God is sovereign and gracious enough to flip the script on all of it so that it winds up serving our good, serving our formation, serving our relationship with the Lord. This is why Paul would also say in Romans chapter 8, when he's talking about his enjoyment of God, he would say, who can separate us from the love of Christ? And then he identifies all these external oppositions. Can affliction or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword? He says, no, in all these things we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am persuaded that neither death nor life nor angels nor rulers nor things present nor things to come nor powers nor height nor depth nor any other created thing will be able to separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus our Lord, our God. This is the hope of Othniel's story. And when you find your heart there, all of a sudden things begin to change. And you find yourself becoming the man or becoming the woman that God desires you to be. A man or a woman who's living their lives not in a way that says life is all about them, but life is all about 
Jesus. This is what rings from Othniel's story. His story wasn't about him. His story was about his God and what his God would do on behalf of others. And here is where the key of the story should turn in our hearts so that we begin to consider, is our lives right now, is it about Christ or is it about us? If our life is all about us, we are going to live dramatic lives in a fallen world. But if our life is all about Christ, we're going to find ourselves being swept up in God's redemptive story. And all of a sudden, we're going to be about the purposes of God. And we're going to be about trusting the promises of God. So the question is, is your life right now all about you or is it all about Christ? This is where this story should intersect with our hearts and intersect with our lives. It reminds us that life isn't about us. And this is the beauty of Othniel's story. His story wasn't about him. His story was about the Lord. And I hope and pray that that would be true of each and every one of you. That the life you live in this world won't be about you. That's a life of self-sabotage. That's a life of ridiculous drama. That's a life of idolatry. That's a life where you're going to be crushed under the pressures of a fallen world. If life is all about you, that's the direction you're going. But if you find yourself saying life is all about Christ... You're going to find your heart liberated from the stranglehold of idolatry. And you're going to find yourself being able to say with Paul, I'm going to rejoice in my sufferings. I'm going to rejoice in my trials because I have a God, I have a Savior who can flip the script on all of it. Who can set me free and flip this for my good as I journey through this world. So consider tonight what your life is all about. Is your life all about you? Or is your life all about your Christ, your Savior, your Lord, your God?